Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Joshua Friedman. Hi, I'm Joshua Friedman, Senior Analyst at Rappaport, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. This is a unique episode as we were honoured to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Post, a mineralogist and until recently the curator of the US National Gem and Mineral Collection at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Jeff recently retired after nearly 40 years at the Smithsonian, handling some of the world's most famous jewels, including the Hope Diamond. We discussed this most incredible of diamonds and how Jeff's job straddled the line between gemology and storytelling. And listen out for his valuable opinion on how the natural diamond industry needs to market its product in the face of competition from lab-grown diamonds. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. This is one of our first episodes of 2024. I'm excited about this, and I'm very particularly grateful this time to have a very esteemed guest join us for this podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Post. Jeff is a recently retired as the curator of the National Gem and Mineral Collection at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. So this is really a great opportunity for the Rappaport Diamond Podcast to have you on this episode. Jeff, it's really good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Joshua. I'm delighted to join you. So you've had 32 years as curator. So I really wanted to start by hearing your story, how you became involved in the Smithsonian, how you became involved in gemology. And I know you were also particularly involved or influential in growing the National German Mineral Collection. So Jeff, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, my, my background is probably pretty typical of a lot of uh, academics. I was in a you know, graduate program in mineralogy and chemistry were my passions and ended up doing a postdoc at Harvard and at that point needed to find a job. And one of the positions that was posted at the time was a research mineralogist at the Smithsonian Institution. And at that time, I didn't quite know what that exactly meant, but it sounded pretty interesting. So I applied for that along with some other positions and went down for an interview and remember coming back from the Smithsonian and telling my fiance at the time that I'd never been a place where everybody I talked to was so enthusiastic about their job and that the Smithsonian was just a place I'd never imagined. So we, after some discussion, uh, both of us had grown up in the Midwest. And so living in a large Eastern city was not exactly uh, part of our plan, but the Smithsonian was such a draw that we decided it was something we could just could not pass up. And so I went to the Smithsonian as a mineralogist, as a scientist, and immediately became obvious that it was a very different kind of place. It was a place that had this fantastic collection of gems and minerals. It was a place very much in the public eye. You know, we had millions of visitors every year coming into the museum. And so it was going to be a type of job that was very different than anything else I could have imagined. I also became a curator of a collection, which is not something you learn in academia, but it's something you sort of learn on the job. But also it became obvious that the public had tremendous curiosity for gems and minerals. And so a big part of the job was going to be that interface between the science and the collection and the public's interest in those areas. And I also learned early on that my areas of interest in mineralogy, which sort of like environmental mineralogy, you know, studying things like clays and soils and iron and manganese oxides. You know, that wasn't the topic that the public was mostly interested in. I remember early on giving some talks in those areas, a few people would show up. And then even then the questions were always about, well, what about the Hope Diamond? What about the gem collection? And so I gradually learned that giving a talk about the gem collection was a much better way to connect with the public than talking about some of my other research topics. And so it was clear that the public had this fascination for gems. And so inevitably, my interests sort of gravitated more and more in those directions as well. And fortunately, having this tremendous collection, it was an opportunity to pursue my research interests, but also tie that in then with a way to communicate to the public about gems and minerals more broadly. All right, so from clays and mud to the Hope Diamonds, you hinted at this already, but it's a very different job being a research scientist from being a curator of a collection. I mean, it's a much more maybe artistic job. It takes a different skill set. Well, it does. And the beauty of being at the Smithsonian was that I could combine both of those. And so I had this great opportunity to pursue the research that I was interested in. But you're doing it always 
with this awareness that the public is just outside the door and that they have interests that you're trying to connect with. And, you know, one of the truly exciting opportunities of being at the Smithsonian was that you had this direct connection between the research you're doing and the public right there. So that in the morning, I could be working in the lab on an electron microscope or doing x-ray diffraction work. And that afternoon, be talking to the public about exactly what I was doing that morning. And so that direct link between research and the science and the collections and the public is something that you only get at a place like the Smithsonian or the Natural History Museum of London or other such natural history museums. So I gradually became aware that this was a a rare opportunity to do both of these things. But clearly, being able to talk to the public about the gem collection in particular took me into a direction I had not fully thought about previously, and one that I got more and more passionate about. Right. And I imagine there's also a donor relationship management, at least from what I've read about your career. A lot of it has involved acquiring donations. Well, certainly one of the primary objectives of being a curator, particularly of our gem collection, was uh, trying to grow that collection. And you do this for a couple of reasons. One is you're trying to build a collection that is representative of the materials for research and for preserving these materials for the future, but also because these materials represent stories that you want to be able to tell to the public. And in many cases are objects that you want to be able to give the public an opportunity to see. And if they aren't going to be able to see them in a place like the Smithsonian or other great museums, they may never see them anywhere in their lifetime. Because as you probably know, a lot of these particularly gemstones tend to live a life where they're somewhat hidden away. You know, they tend to be in private collections or in bank vaults or other places. And so getting a chance to see these things is not always possible for most of us and certainly for the public. And so this is one of the opportunities that being a curator of a place like the Smithsonian offers is how do we get some of these great objects out into the open and particularly into a place where they can be appreciated by literally everyone. And so because most of these objects are owned privately, you end up having to work with a wide variety of people to try to steer some of these things into the public domain. And in most cases, that ultimately requires convincing them or at least providing the opportunity for them to see that they could be part of a great collection and in many cases provide a bit of a legacy for themselves. One of the nice things about the Smithsonian collection is it's a high-profile collection. The Smithsonian is free to everyone, but it's available to anyone wanting to come in the door and see these things. And I think for a lot of individuals, they recognize that putting something in the Smithsonian collection means that it is a gift basically to the world. And it also, because the Smithsonian has had this long history. Now, when I say long history, I'm talking in United States terms, what's been there for 150, 175 years now. So there's a sense that it will also be around long into the future. And so someone donating something to the Smithsonian collection, it's not only that it has this immediate impact to the public, but it also sort of indicates that there's going to be this legacy that is going to live on for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. And I think for a lot of individuals, leaving a little bit of that legacy or a little bit of immortality is part of what they see as an attractive thing. And of course, the great thing about gems is that gemstones have this permanence, this sense of carrying a story on forever. They look every bit as beautiful, you know, will look as every bit as beautiful thousands of years from now as they do now. And so it's a chance for donors to give something to the collection that not only will be beautiful and will be special for people to see now, but will carry their story and carry that impact long into the future. I found that in many cases, working with donors, it wasn't so much me having to convince somebody of something. It was me simply explaining to them the opportunity that giving something to a collection like the Smithsonian's could provide. And then the the people recognizing that this is something they'd like to do. And so all of our great gemstones have come into the collection as donations. And fortunately in the United States, there is sort of a long history of donors building such collections. And of course, on the very practical side, there is a tax benefit for people wanting to give things to collections like the Smithsonian. And so ultimately, it's those two things that probably drive or have driven a lot of the major gifts that have come into the collection. 
And so I was in this great opportunity, a great place of being a curator of the Smithsonian. And one of the things I realized also early on is that coming from the Smithsonian is incredible sort of foot in the door for almost any conversation. You know, you'd call somebody up or you'd meet somebody at a meeting or a conference or a dinner or wherever it is. And once you got the words out, hi, I'm Jeff Post from the Smithsonian, immediately people were happy to talk to you because it's a place that has a great reputation. Most people in the United States at least have been there or they've been there with their families or taken their kids there. And so it became an immediate conversation starter. And so I didn't have to work that hard to convince people to talk to me. Um, the Smithsonian sort of was that entree that made my job pretty easy. How often did people come to you or to the Smithsonian saying, I want to donate something? Or how often did you have to do a sales job, almost like you were a big uh, auction house? A lot of both. One of the joys of being at the Smithsonian was most of my career. You know, I'm still involved in some projects there and will be for a while. I'm curator emeritus. And so I still wake up in the morning thinking, wow, you know, something interesting is going to happen today. And going into a place like the Smithsonian, that was always the case. And some days it was a research discovery. Some days it was meeting somebody from the public. Other days it was getting a phone call or nowadays more often an email from somebody going, would you be interested in this for the collection or I'd like to talk to you about something that we might have that you might be interested in. And those kinds of conversations were always fascinating and often would lead to something. Sometimes people had different ideas of how things worked and so it would take a long time to work something out or it would not work at all. And in other cases, it was as simple as somebody saying, we have this great gem. We'd like to give it to the Smithsonian. And how do we do that? But, you know, as curator, wherever you are, you, you don't take that hat off too often. And so going to conferences, going to gem shows, meeting people in various walks, it became a great opportunity to start these conversations. And sometimes you planted a seed. Somebody was just buying a gem at one point and you just casually say, well, you know, that's something that uh, would be a great piece for our collection someday. And, you know, they're not ready to give it then. But suddenly, 15 years later, you get a phone call or an email saying, well, you know, I remember you said a long time ago that this is something you might be interested in. Are you still interested? And suddenly now they're at a point where they're thinking maybe we need to decide what we want to do with this piece in the future. And so these kinds of conversations are just in all these different stages throughout your career. And I benefited from some of those conversations that my predecessors have and hopefully my successors will benefit from some of those we've had now because everybody is at different stages in their ownership of things that they are ready to have those conversations. Right. And probably the most famous donation to the collection was in 1958, the Hope Diamond from Harry Winston. How central is that to the collection? It clearly is our most famous piece in the collection. And, you know, it's hard to overstate the impact the Hope Diamond has had on our Smithsonian collection. You know, when it came into the museum in 1958, um, it already had achieved a certain amount of, of fame because it had been traveling around the country as part of Harry Winston's Court of Jewels exhibit. He was a great showman, and so a lot of people had seen the diamond. You know, it's amazing to me, even today, I get occasionally an email or I'll, I'll hear from someone who says, oh, you know, my mother wore the Hope Diamond or my grandmother wore the Hope Diamond. And a lot of that was during the time when Harry Winston was traveling around the country prior to the times of social media. You know, we didn't have TikTok. So if you wanted to promote something or to tell a story, you had to go out there and show it to people. And so it made the newspapers. It was, you know, on the news shows. I went into these various cities around the country. So when it came to Washington in 1958, a lot of people had heard about the Hope Diamond. So it immediately became one of these sort of must-see items in Washington. And there are various statistics that show the attendance to the museum more than doubled within a few weeks after it came to the Smithsonian. And it just became one of those things that when people came to Washington, they wanted to see the Hope Diamond. And so it put the museum on the map as a destination, not just to see the Hope Diamond, but really to think about to see gemstones. And part of Harry Winston's stated sort of reasons for giving the Hope Diamond when he did was he thought, well, we don't have crown jewels, we don't have a king and queen, but we should have, in fact, a great national gem collection. And what better place than in Washington, D.C., at a place where the museums are free to everybody who wants to come in. So his giving the Hope Diamond put us on the map. And then if that was the beginning, what really put the sort of the wind in our sails 
was a number of other private gifts that came in in the early 60s, Marjorie Merriweather Post and Janet Annenberg Hooker and others that sort of built on this idea of a great national gem collection. But without the Hope Diamond to start it all off, it it's clearly would not be what it is today. And when people, you know, one of the main reasons why people still come into the Natural History Museum is to see the Hope Diamond. You know, it's sort of like our Mona Lisa. You know, when you go to the Louvre, you want to see the Mona Lisa first, you know, just in case something happens and you have to leave the museum suddenly, you don't want to leave not having seen the Hope not having seen the Mona Lisa. Well, the Hope Diamond's a little bit the same way. You know, people come in and they want to see the Hope Diamond. And it is a great story. I realized early on in my career that there was no way that I could just separate myself from the Hope Diamond. It was the kinds of questions that people had. They all wanted to know, why is it famous? You know, is it cursed? You know, what's the story? How much is it worth? All these things that, that people are curious about. And so I had the good fortune of being able to both think about the Hope Diamond from the point of view as a scientist. We actually did a lot of research on the Hope Diamond. It turns out it's a fascinating geological, gemological specimen, as well as being a great historical piece of jewelry gemstone. And so we kind of had the two-pronged opportunity to study its human history, but also to understand it better as a rare blue diamond that formed deep in the earth. And so those two things together, I think, have made it an even more fascinating object for our visitors, because we try to put those both together, that reminding them that the story of the Hope Diamond didn't just begin when Harry Winston gave it in 1958, or didn't just begin when King Louis XIV acquired it in 1669. But in fact, the story began probably 2 billion years ago when this diamond formed maybe 500 miles below the surface of the earth. And so when you put those two things together, it becomes, I think, even more fascinating object. And then there's still parts of the story that we don't fully know, both from its natural history story, but also the human side. And so I think this sense that we're always it's still a bit of a mystery story that we're trying to solve is part of why the public finds it fascinating. How often would you take the Hope Diamond into the lab and inspect it? Um, we did that several times. And, you know, one of the great opportunities of being a researcher at the Smithsonian is that we could study the Hope Diamond. It also underscores why having objects such as the Hope Diamond in a place like the Smithsonian it is truly a great thing for many ways. That, and one of them is that it gives researchers the chance to study it. You know, a private owner of a large blue diamond worth, you know, huge amounts of money typically isn't going to loan it to a scientist to let them take it in the lab and poke and prod at it a bit to, to study it. But the fact that that diamond is part of our collection means that it is available for study. And so we did a number of those studies. We published papers on, you know, we put the Hope Diamond we took it out of its setting and we spent a night. You know, when you're studying the Hope Diamond, one of the things you always have to keep in mind is that primarily it has to be back on exhibit during the daytime because we have thousands of people every day wanting to see it. And so the research starts as soon as the museum closes and we then go out, take it off exhibit, bring it back into our vault. And we have a jeweler come in, unset the diamond from the setting. And then one of the studies was we want to determine how much boron was in the diamond giving it the blue color. We knew that boron from other studies was the reason for the blue color, but how much boron? I mean, that's just not a study that could have been done otherwise. But we had an instrument in the department at the time that was perfect for that study. It's called a time of flight secondary ion mass spectrometer. And so we took the diamond out of the setting and we literally spent all night putting that diamond into that instrument, we ablated off, we blasted off a few hundred thousand atoms off the backside of the Hope Diamond, sorted those atoms by mass to determine how much boron was in the diamond. And from that study, we determined that there's about a half a part per million of boron in the Hope Diamond. And in early morning, we had the jeweler come back in, we put the diamond back into the setting and then had it back out on exhibit about five minutes before the exhibit opened to the public and no one was the wiser, but we had done this great study. And there was another opportunity we had. In fact, one of the really memorable moments, I guess, for me as a curator was we had this chance to do a side-by-side -side study of the Hope Diamond and the Wittelsbach Diamond. And, you know, you may know the Wittelsbach was, is another historically important blue diamond. And it has an interesting history that somewhat parallels that of the Hope Diamond. 
both of the diamonds came out of India in the 1600s. And the Hope Diamond went, or the parent of the Hope Diamond, at least as now as we believe, went to King Louis XIV of France, became part of the French crown jewels. The Wittelsbach Diamond came out of India within a few years and ended up going to the royal family of Spain. And so here we have these two big blue diamonds, the Wittelsbach, about 35 carats then, the Hope Diamond, you know, at that time, after it became part of the French crown blues, about 68 carats. Both of these big blue diamonds coming out of India about the same time, and then following their path through different sort of royal intrigue and going from one country to another. And whereas the Hope Diamond eventually ended up in Washington, D.C., owned by this wealthy woman, Evelyn Walsh McLean, and then eventually the Smithsonian, the Wittelsbach Diamond, after being part of the royal family of Bavaria in Germany, sort of disappeared, kind of went into private ownership, and nobody had seen it for decades. But there was always this speculation. I mean, it's curious that in hundreds of years of history, only two large blue diamonds ever showed up that were noteworthy, and both came out of India about the same time. And so could they have come from the same original piece of rough? I mean, were they somehow related? But because the Wittelsbach had sort of disappeared, that study could never be done. The Hope Diamond and the Wittelsbach were never put side by side. Well, then suddenly the Wittelsbach Diamond came up for auction, and it was purchased by Lawrence Graff. And then he had the diamond slightly recut to improve chips and things in the diamond, just historically had ended up there. And so we approached Lawrence Graff and we said, well, you know, we would love to do side by side, look at the Hope Diamond and the Wittelsbach. It's never been done. Would you be willing to loan it to us, both for exhibition and then also for study? And he agreed. And so the Wittelsbach came to Washington, D.C. And I remember we had a bunch of scientists, a bunch of colleagues from the GIA, John Walsh Institute to America, a couple of other collaborators that I've worked on with diamonds, all of us assembled to do this study. And they all brought their equipment. Our vault was absolutely jammed full of all these instruments that we wanted to use to study this because it had to be done under high security. And so, of course, the Hope Diamond was on exhibit. The Wittelsbach Diamond was delivered to us. So I put the Wittelsbach diamond back in the vault. And then when the museum closed to the public, I had to kick all the scientists out of our vault. And I had to go then with our security out to the exhibit hall. And we took the Hope Diamond off exhibit. And I took it back into the vault. And for that first moment, I was back in the vault. And it was just me and the Hope Diamond and the Wittelsbach diamond. And I'm holding these two diamonds in my hands and thinking, this is like the old first time ever in history that these two diamonds have been next to each other. And here I am holding these two great blue diamonds. And so I have to admit, I just kind of savored those few moments and thinking, where else? What other job could I ever have where I could be doing something just like this? And then went out, got all my colleagues, brought them into the vault, and we spent literally all night then doing these side-by-side -side studies of these two blue diamonds. And the result of that study, which got published then, was that, in fact, there were a lot of similarities between these two diamonds, including the fact that both the Wittelsbach and the Hope Diamond show this intense red phosphorescence when exposed to ultraviolet light. But there were also some significant differences. So we were able to show very conclusively that, no, they could not have come from the same original blue diamond. They had to be different diamonds but certainly geologically had very similar stories. And so, you know, it was just one of those great moments, but only again at the Smithsonian could we have done that kind of research and have those diamonds together to do that. But then immediately afterwards, share the two diamonds with the public and then tell the story of those two diamonds and research that we did to the public. It's a fascinating story. You mentioned shaving atoms off the Hope Diamond. Was, was there ever concern that damage might be done to one of these one of these pieces? Obviously, none of us wanted to be ever go down in history as the person that somehow wrecked the Hope Diamond. Is something that we took great care with. And so the Hope Diamond was not the first diamond that, for example, we put into the Toff Sims, the time of flight secondary ion mass spectrometer. We actually worked on some other blue diamonds first to make sure that we understood exactly how the experiment would play out, what we needed to, how much we needed to do the measurement. And in fact, we have another important blue diamond in the collection that sometimes gets overshadowed by the Hope Diamond, 
but in many ways is also one of the great blue diamonds in the world. It's called the blue heart diamond. Okay, we're not very creative there, but it's a heart-shaped blue diamond, about 30 carats. And it's a more, you know, it's a stone that came out of the premier mine. So it's a more modern cut blue diamond. According to a lot of people, one of the most beautiful blue diamonds because of its more modern cut. But it's sitting in the next room from the Hope Diamond. So most of our visitors, by the time they get to it, they go, oh, another blue diamond, big deal. And, uh, you know, whereas anywhere else, it would be the star. And I know, in fact, when Marjorie Merrill Post gave us that diamond, I remember she would commonly talk to her friends saying, well, this is a much prettier diamond than the Hope Diamond. You know, what's the big deal here? But of course, it doesn't have the same history as the Hope Diamond. But we did a study on that diamond before we did the study on the Hope Diamond. Plus, we have some smaller blue diamonds we also worked on. So we had a chance to do a fairly comprehensive set of measurements on a variety of blue diamonds, all leading up to the Hope Diamond being the last one that we did. Right. It sounds like you have quite a gemological operation there at the Smithsonian. Did you ever consider offering gemological services, lab services, to the industry? It's not really what we're about. We are primarily, I mean, we're a research organization. And we're also a, well, the Smithsonian's an interesting combination of being both a government sort of instrument, but also a private institution. Brief history, of course, going back to Great Britain, Englishman James Smithson, mineralogist, chemist, after he passed away in the early 1800s, he left his fortune to the United States for the establishment of an institution for the increase and diffusion of knowledge, ultimately became the Smithsonian Institution. So that was we were established as a private entity using the funds from James Smithson. But then ultimately, that was augmented by funds from the U.S. government as our mission expanded. As the United States started assembling collections from various exploring expeditions, particularly to the western part of the United States, those collections needed a place and needed to have work done on them. And so the Smithsonian became the repository for those collections and also then a place for the research to be done on those and an opportunity then ultimately to share them with the public through a museum. And so we're now this interesting combination of public and private. But because I was a federal employee and because a lot of us are government, we have a fairly specific mission. And that mission is to do the research and do not provide then a commercial service as a result of that. We do provide, you know, we get a lot of inquiries from the public, you know, people sending us pictures of things, sending us descriptions of things, sometimes sending us things, showing up at the door saying, what is this? And we will try to do as much of that as we can. But frankly, we just don't have the resources to serve that in that capacity. And so we often try to connect up people with experts in their area or in other places. But we have a great working relationship with various gemological laboratories. I mean, obviously, our collection is an important resource that we will loan to various laboratories who are doing research if they need comparison stones because of the fact that a lot of our stones date back to the 1800s, early 1900s, and are from sources that are fairly well documented and then predate various treatments that were being done. A lot of times they can be useful as standards or comparisons for stones that are coming out today. So we work with the various labs in Great Britain and the continent, but also in the United States with GIA. So we prefer to look at our collections as a resource to be used, and we will try to support research that's being done by those organizations and let them do the work they do so well as the more testing commercial laboratories. And uh, we just try to provide the scientific support if we can. Very interesting. I wanted to ask about the issue of ethical practices, the kind of trend towards reassessing past practices in terms of acquiring wealth, acquiring objects. I know that the Smithsonian has had to return certain items to other countries, maybe only on one occasion, but you maybe you have to correct me on that. Has that been relevant at all to the, the mineral and gem collection? Um, yeah, I mean, it is a very topical question these days. And obviously, my tenure at the Smithsonian has overlapped almost entirely with a fairly strong focus on repatriation. And it started out with mostly a focus on repatriation for North American indigenous peoples, but has expanded beyond that. And I think there's an awareness throughout the world in terms of museums and similar institutions of how we have acquired collections, how we use collections, and how those collections should be curated and managed in the future. And so all of my time at the Smithsonian, I think, required an increasing amount but we're always aware of 
a certain amount of due diligence that just we needed to apply to everything certainly coming new in the collection, but also being aware of that as we continue to do research. I mean, part of the job of being a curator is that you're not only adding to the collection, but you're continuing to add knowledge about the collection. And so in both of those areas, you know, you have to be aware of not only the prevailing ideas of how collections should be managed and where they should be managed, but also how they were acquired and perhaps, you know, what the context was at the time they were being acquired. And I mean, one of the things that makes it a little bit simpler in our case is our colonial past doesn't go back quite as far as some countries have. And so there's a little bit less of an issue there to deal with, but it is something we're always aware of. I mean, in terms of the mineral collection, probably one of the major topics that has reoccurred in that area, we have a large copper boulder. It's called the Ontonagon boulder. It came from Northern Michigan and it was transported to Washington, D.C. through the Navy Department back in the 1800s. And there's been an ongoing discussion about whether this is somehow was a sacred object to certain tribes up in the northern part of Michigan. And there was a long repatriation discussion about this object. There was a determination that this object itself was never actually used for such purposes. But then there's a general recognition that copper boulders such as those in general were thought were held to be unusual or important objects to some of these early peoples. So how does that piece then fit into that story? And that's something it's still an ongoing discussion, frankly. And so there will be, I'm sure, other such stories that will come up that we'll have to be dealing with. With the gem collection, you know, interesting parts of that is there's always been an interest in the history of gemstones. It's always been fascinating to me that when you take a gemstone and you put it in the hands of somebody, almost invariably, the first question that comes out of their mouth is, who owned it? Where did this come from? In addition to the beauty and just the recognition of it as something special from the earth, the fascination I think we have as people for these stones is wanting to know their story, their history. And that has always been, I think, a focus for us because the public keeps asking these questions. So I just finished a recent book about many of the objects in the collection. And part of the motivation of that was trying to fill in a lot of the stories, the histories behind a lot of these pieces. And so in fact, it became sort of a pandemic project was pouring through all the archives we have, which fortunately now are mostly digitized, and trying to fill in some of these early parts of those stories and see if there are parts of them that we previously were not aware of or continue the process. And it is an ongoing process. Most of our pieces, the stories are more recent. And so it's a little easier to follow them through. They start with some commercial interaction somewhere, something was sold to someone, and we can trace them back to the origins, to the mines in many cases. But in many places, we're still filling in some of those stories. And so far, we've tried to be pretty transparent about the histories, you know, because we are a scientific organization and so want to tell the story as best as we know it. And Questions come up occasionally, but so far it hasn't been generally controversial. But I think as we continue to learn, well, we have to be aware that there always could be stories that, that could come out that we're going to have to think about and be sure that we're thoughtful in how we address those. Right. Have any of the more recent hostilities or sanctions have impacted your acquisition strategy, like Zimbabwe or more recently Russia? Yeah, I mean, certainly our collection policy requires that we follow certain guidelines put out by, you know, certainly the federal government. And, you know, the government says, like right now, we are not allowed to accept into the collection objects from certain countries. There are sanctions against certain countries. Obviously, we would not be accepting diamonds from obvious Russian sources at this time, you know. And there's sort of two levels to that. One is legal guidelines that the federal government, in our case, would require us to follow. But also then there's beyond that, you know, we are a very public institution. And so we do have to know that whatever we do has to be something that will live up to public scrutiny as well. It's not just doing something that is legally correct. It's doing something that by all perception is correct. That gets to be a fine line and can often be a lot of conversation. And when we acquire something for the collection, it's never been a case of me or any one individual saying, yeah, let's take this for the collection. It's always been a process of sort of consensus, first with my colleagues within my department and your collection managers and others, but then also, you know, going through to our museum director and beyond that, 
And so there's always a fair bit of justification and evaluation and research that goes into any major gift coming into the collection. And a big part of that discussion has always been, can we, you know, answer all the questions that might come up about this? And if we have concerns and doubts, then we have walked away from things sometimes. Do you hold any lab-grown gemstones or diamonds in your collection? Well, in fact, we have some of the very first lab-grown diamonds ever introduced to the public. You know, when General Electric did their early experiments in the 1950s to produce the lab-grown diamonds using high-pressure techniques, some of those early stones were donated then to our collection. And so it, it is, you know, part of the diamond story that we do tell. Since then, um, in terms of synthetic lab-grown diamond synthetic, I am not aware that we have any other more recent lab-grown diamonds that have been added to the collection. We do have examples of lab-grown rubies, emeralds, others that have been donated, in part because, again, being a research collection, having the synthetic analogs to a lot of these materials have been helpful because our collection is not only there for us to use, but also, in fact, the major reason we build our research collection is that it's available to research scientists anywhere in the world that need to borrow specimens for the collection. And we provide those specimens for research at no charge and to any researcher connected to a legitimate research organization. And so our thinking in terms of what we add to the collection is also what might be important scientifically, not just now, but also in the future. I was going to ask if the public, the visitors, do they show any interest in these, particularly the General Electric? Oh, they do. The whole subject of lab-grown diamonds has been very much a topic of conversation that has come up in many contexts with our visitors. I mean, in talks that I give, just being out there with the public, you know, clearly people are aware of them. And the obvious question is always, are they real diamonds? You know, what, what do you think? I mean, are they, and, you know, it's the same conversations that are going on at all different levels in the diamond industry these days. And it's a pretty fascinating one. There's no doubt about it. What do you think? Are they real diamonds? Oh, first, they're real diamonds. You know, my background as a mineralogist, as a chemist, I've always been fascinated with diamond as a material, one of the great study objects. I mean, there's probably been more papers written about diamond than almost any other single material because of its various properties for all kinds of things, but also its geological background, the whole bit. So it's, there's no doubt it's a fascinating material. And as a chemist or as a mineralogist, I could, you know, structure the composition of a lab-grown diamond is identical to a natural diamond in, in all the ways that are essentially important for describing material. So there's no doubt it's a diamond, but then, you know, the stories diverge. And so, you know, how everyone perceives those different stories is going to be a very interesting thing to see play out. And I think that you may not have asked, but I'll tell you, the thing that has become obvious in my job as curator all these years, as I alluded to earlier, people are fascinated by the stories that go along with gemstones. And I think people perceive a big part of the value of a gemstone as being its story. And so I think that what will be interesting to see is how people perceive the story of lab-grown versus natural diamonds as playing out and how much of the story about the diamond is its value. There are people that are passionate about diamonds as products of the earth. And clearly there's a geological story. There's a long, you know, as I alluded to with the Hope Diamond, two billion year or more story that goes along with natural diamonds that's very different than the story that goes along with lab-grown diamonds. And so I think that the more that story becomes part of the natural diamond, I think that will separate it in one way, whether it's good or bad or whether it's how it's perceived as something else by the public, but it gives the natural diamond its own place. And I think the more that story is emphasized, people will understand what the difference is. Now, on the other hand, lab-grown diamonds are sort of a fascinating story too. It's a little bit of a testament to the prowess, the technological abilities of mankind to take something and to produce what are now getting to be larger and larger. I mean, I've heard recently about a 50 carat man-made diamond and who knows where that'll end. And they're becoming more and more perfect. And so, you know, you look at a natural or a lab-grown diamond 
And that has its own story that's sort of fascinating. You know, here's something that was produced in a laboratory or let's say a factory, however you want to do it. But it was produced because of the technological advancements. The, it's not something that was simple. I mean, we didn't do it in the last 2,000 years. We only did it now. And so it's something that took certain advancements, certain understandings of science to be able to do this. And so that's a story. And which story is more appealing you know, or will appeal to different people, I think, is part of what will separate these two different materials from each other a little bit. And how that plays out with the public, it's not going to be clear. I mean, I asked my daughter, who's 26 years old and or 25, and I said, well, what would you rather have? You know, a five carat lab grown diamond or a one carat natural diamond? She just said, are they both diamonds? And I said, well, yes. And she said, the bigger diamond. <laughs> and so it kind of broke my heart a little bit. But on the other hand, um, who knows? When when push comes to shove, maybe she'll change her mind. But I think it's a confusing time for the public. And certainly in the industry, it's a matter of a lot of conversation. But it's been fascinating for me intersecting with the public from a curator point of view and realizing that the public does have these questions. They are curious. They are fascinated. But I think they still want to know the stories. And I think the more that people understand or given the opportunity understand what different stories are, people will choose. I hate to say, and it's maybe my bias coming through a little bit, but being a mineralogist and working with natural materials from the earth all my life, I think it's pretty hard to discount the story of something that took billions of years to form deep in the earth and then is a product of nature. It's hard to say that's not something special. And I think that Maybe we've lost that a little bit. I mean, I think, honestly, I think in some ways the diamond industry hurt itself a little bit by promoting diamond as diamond and not so much as this thing that came out of the earth and the whole story behind it. And I think the fact that, you know, this whole like a diamond is forever, you know, if you can translate diamond to either natural or lab grown, you don't separate the two. It's the story behind it that's different. And I think in some ways, the industry a little bit lost the story of where diamonds came from and why they're special in terms of their geologic story and why it is that what came out of the earth is something that we should treasure in a different way than what came out of a laboratory. And I think that when we're only talking about them as diamonds, generic, we sort of lost that. And, and partly I understand it because for a long time, lab-grown wasn't part of the story, right? You didn't have to. When you talked about diamond, you only talked about diamonds that came out of the earth. And now when you're talking about diamond, you're talking about a material that could either come out of a laboratory or factory or come out of the earth. And somehow changing that, adjusting the story a bit to remind people that, okay, they're both diamonds, but they have very different stories. And I'm not sure that has been emphasized in the way that people, I think, would like to know to allow them to make a more comfortable and informed decision about what it is they're acquiring and what it is they want to have. Because again, people, when they see that gemstone, I don't care whether it's lab-grown or natural or it's a ruby or an emerald, when somebody says, that's a beautiful thing you've got on your finger, the first thing they want to do is they want to tell the story. They want to say, why is this particular stone something special? And, you know, if it's a diamond, I think a lot of us would like to say, yeah, and you know what, that formed two billion years ago on the earth and came out. Isn't it an amazing thing that that survived the trip from 100 miles below the surface to the surface? And it's one that survived and one that was found. And that's what makes this stone special. And, you know, somebody else may say, I think this is special because somebody made this thing. I think, you know, it's an incredible story that an engineer devised a way to produce something like this. And isn't it wonderful that I have something that was made by human hands? But I think that the more that story becomes a separate story and the more that people know what that story is, they'll decide what story they want to tell. The diamond industry certainly has a lot more work to do to tell that story. Oh, I agree with you. And I think that it didn't have to push that story for, for a long time because all they had to say was the diamond is forever. Well, now lab-grown diamond is forever too. So, you know, it's... Uh, Somehow you've got to decide 
what is your story and let the public know what the story is clearly so the public can decide. Jeff, you've achieved a lot in your career. You've published books. As someone who struggles to get us 800 word article over the line, I'm amazed that people are able to write books. So I'm, I'm very impressed by that. What are your plans for retirement now? Well, so far, I mean, I retired officially last May, but I can't say that life has felt all that different yet. And I guess I knew that the idea of picking a date that you retire and going, okay, on that day, everything I want to do is done, um, would never happen. But at some point, you have to pick a day and go, okay, you know, now I have to start thinking about projects in life a little bit differently. I have to think about how do I finish things rather than starting things. And, you know, plus, hopefully adding a little bit of flexibility to your life to allow you to focus on some of the things that maybe you haven't done. You know, a place like the Smithsonian is wonderful, but it's also administrative overhead. And I have to say that I've enjoyed more and more saying, not my problem. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do that anymore. And so not going to meetings, not having to answer all the emails, not having to be part of all the discussions going on. I'm delighted to pass a lot of that on to my very able successors. And I can focus on, I can spend the day in the lab, finish some projects or work on a book or whatever it is I want to do that is different. But, you know, I, I think to my wife's chagrin, she's also realized that what I did for my job and my career is also what I do for my hobby. And so I got into the career I did because of a passion for minerals and the stories that they have and the gems related to them. And that doesn't go away because you retire. And I'm still involved. I'm on the board of directors for the Gemological Institute of America. I've got other connections that I will hopefully continue with the gem industry. I still give talks. I'll be working on papers and things. And I'm working with some students. So some of that work will continue on. But hopefully, again, with a little more flexibility, you know, it's nice to wake up in the morning and go, well, I'm just going to stay home today and uh, not go into the museum or not do something else. And that part of it's good. I still love the gems. I still love the minerals. And I enjoy Probably the best part of it, you look back and you go, great stories, great objects, but mostly great people. And the part that, that is really gratifying is that retiring doesn't mean you lose all those connections with all the people. And so the gem industry, but also the museum world and the research gives you this opportunity to interact with some really interesting and wonderful people. And that's been the real treasure. That's been the joy of my career is all the people that I've had a chance to work with. It made my job easy. And, you know, you don't have to convince people to love gemstones, right? You know, it's just you settle into this great community of people. And to me, the gratifying thing is that the day I retired didn't sever those connections. Really appreciated the fact that I've been able to continue a lot of those conversations to get to see people. Many of them are good friends. And I look forward to continuing the conversations, continuing those interactions and hopefully satisfying still my curiosity about some of the stories related to gems and minerals that I don't know the answer to yet. And Jeff, a final question. I think you've probably had a lot of practice answering. How much is the Hope Diamond worth? Oh, <laughs> you know, it's one of the great questions that it's great not to have an answer to. A couple of things, you know, part of what draws people into our exhibit to come to see the Hope Diamond is you see this thing and you're thinking, how much is it worth? And in some ways, I'm not sure you really want to know the answer to that. It's a lot more fun to imagine what it might be worth. And I think to all of us, it's worth something different. And I think that's a pretty fascinating thing. Although there is a reality that you can look up what blue diamonds sell for at auction these days, and particularly ones that may have any history associated with them. And you can multiply the price per carat times, you know, the 45.52 carats of the Hope Diamond. And you can go, wow, that's a big number. And you go, well, that's got to be one of the most valuable things per volume in the world. And of course, it underscores why gemstones are so still something that are valuable, something that in a way, if we didn't have, we'd need. I mean, what else has the greatest form of portable wealth than gemstones, right? And so for Hope Diamond, you look at it and go, my gosh, you know, they could put this, you know, somebody puts it in their pocket and they go around the country. What else could you, how else could you carry that much wealth with you? And the only ultimate answer and the one that, you know, our security officers always will say is, well, the only way we know is you put it up for auction someday and you see what somebody would pay for it. And ultimately, for things like that or great pieces of art, whatever, the only way you really know what it's worth is what somebody's willing to pay for it. And then the great thing is the day after the auction, you start all over again going, how much is that worth? You know, what's it worth now? 
And uh, isn't it kind of fun to know there are things out there that we just don't really know how much they're worth. We know they're valuable to us in a lot of different ways. And I think in some ways, it almost minimalizes in a way the great value of a gemstone by putting a price on it. Because then we go, well, its value is this amount. But as we know in the industry, or as those of us who love gems, the real value is history, where it came from, the beauty it has. You put it in your hand and you hold it and you go, that is like the most incredible thing I've ever seen. There's a value there. How do you put a value on that, right? And so you don't want people to think about our gems in terms of how much they're worth in money value. We want people to think about them as incredibly interesting and beautiful objects yeah, they happen to be valuable. But then the question is, why? Why are they valuable? You know, you can't eat them. You can't, you know, if you throw them at somebody, I guess it's a weapon, but it doesn't really hurt somebody too much. But why have these things been so appreciated? Why have kings and queens used them as a source of either wealth or status? I mean, why today do we still think of them as a form of status and wealth? I mean, what is it about these stones that it's almost like if we didn't have them as a civilization or society, We'd have to invent something like that because we need something like that. And I think that becomes the greater sort of story about gems that we sometimes lose a little bit. You know, we tend to commoditize them. We tend to always be putting a price tag on them. And I think even in the industry, if I fault the industry at all, again, it's because we sort of get a little bit jaded by the fact that everything has a price on it and how much can we make by selling it with it. And for me, the, the great joy of being a courier, I always said the best part of the job is I didn't have to sell anything. You know, I didn't have to put a price tag on it. I didn't have to convince somebody to buy something. I could just simply hold it in my hand and say, isn't this one of the most incredible things you've ever seen for all kinds of reasons? And the price had very little to do with it. And I think the more we think about gems that way, ironically, the more valuable they become to us. And I think ultimately that's the real value of a gemstone and the more we can tell that part of the story, the more we can let people just really enjoy them as beautiful things and not worry about whether they're investments or what the value is going to be in the future or anything like that, the value will actually be there. It will actually be even more so because ultimately that's the only reason we value them is because they're sort of these beautiful things that last forever. And where else can you go in the world and point to something if that's the case? Well, Dr. Jeffrey Post, I'm extremely grateful that you've joined us on this podcast. Really enlightening conversation. I particularly enjoyed learning about how your role has straddled the line between gemology and storytelling. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Joshua, it's been a pleasure. And as you can tell, I enjoy talking about both gems and their stories and the science. It's been a privilege for me to be at a place like the Smithsonian where I had a chance to do that and to get to know a lot of great people and uh, appreciate the chance to share some good memories and thoughts today with you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. For more discussion, news and analysis about the diamond industry, you can visit Rappaport.com, follow Rappaport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. We also invite you to watch our weekly market comment videos on our YouTube channel. 